and good morning. <clears throat> For those of you who were here last week, I think I remember Howard when he came up to preach making some kind of comment about how I was preaching for the next couple of weeks, and I think you said I might have some surprises. Uh, if you heard that and were wondering what he was talking about, you might have thought I was coming up here on, with a clown suit or something. I don't know. So, sorry to disappoint you. My intention for the next two weeks is to come and stand right here and just talk for a period of time when I preach. There's not many surprises. It's something we're pretty familiar with because we'll be continuing the series that we've been working through these first few weeks of the summer, um, knowing God by name, as we work through these different names of God that are given to us throughout Scripture. So this morning, we land on the name El-Roi, which is Hebrew for the God of seeing, or the God who sees me. And you know, I think with those phrases, there may be some cultural ideas that come to mind, maybe imagery from books and movies. I don't know, maybe for, for you there's some different ones, but I thought of like, you know, on the American $1 bill, that creepy little eye in the triangle on top of the pyramid, or like... For those of you who maybe like classic literature, like George Orwell's 1984, Big Brother is Watching, or like The Great Gatsby, Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, these big eyes that kind of overlook the whole city. Or if you like fantasy literature, more like I would, maybe the eye of Sauron up in its big tower looking down over Middle Earth. Well, this morning, we're going to aim to understand what it means that Yahweh is a God of seeing and we're hopefully going to be able to ignore some of these cultural conceptions of what that means. And really, I think the only way to do this is to place this name of God in its context in Scripture. You know, we can't just take the English words, God of seeing or God who sees me, and think that we can just make sense of that without looking at the story from which that name came. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to try to place the story within the whole biblical storyline, and then we're going to understand the name within the individual story itself. So if you have a Bible with you, and I really hope that you do, I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 16. We're going to pretty much be in the whole chapter. We'll almost exclusively be in that chapter this morning. And so while you turn there, just give a bit of a brief history to catch us up on where we are so we understand Again, in the breadth of the larger storyline of the Bible, where this name is coming up. Because we're very early in the story of the Bible, and we're even earlier into the specific story about God's chosen people. The book of Genesis has a really nice dividing line in it. Genesis 1 to 11 kind of gives us a brief history of the beginning of the entire human race. And then in Genesis 12 and on, we get a glimpse into the story, the specific history of God's chosen people. So just to recap the first 15 chapters before the story that we're in here, we have the creation of the world, right? God makes the world out of nothing. And he makes Adam and Eve to tend this beautiful garden and ultimately to fill the earth with human beings, to have dominion over the world. But they disobey. They transgress the one commandment that God gives and sin enters into the world. As a result of their fall, the world becomes increasingly corrupt to the point where we come to the story of the flood. God sends a global flood and wipes out the corrupt human race, except for one family, the family of Noah. Well, after the story of Noah, we once again see humankind just kind of turns towards evil, and we come to the story of the Tower of Babel, 
where mankind is trying to exalt itself over God, to, to make a tower that stretches up into heaven to show their dominance, to show that they can reach to the heavens. And so God, again in an act of judgment, confuses their language, and the spread of humankind over the, course of the, over the face of the earth begins. So that's the end of chapter 11. That's the broader history of mankind. And then as chapter 12 begins we come to the call of Abram. And I'm just going to warn you, his name gets changed during these stories. God changes it as a result of a promise he makes. I am going to use Abram and Abraham interchangeably, mostly because it's really hard not to. So don't get confused. Abram, Abraham, same guy. I'm going to make that mistake as we go. So God chooses Abraham, a a pagan idol worshiper, essentially, and he calls him, he tells him to obey, and he makes him promises. Then we kind of come across some different events through the life of Abraham in the following chapters. And finally, in Genesis 15, the chapter right before where we're going to be this morning, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes him some promises. He promises him that his descendants would become a great nation and that through his descendants, all the people groups of the world would be blessed. And from there, we land in the story that we're in today. So I'm going to read the whole of Genesis chapter 16. I think we need to understand, again, the name in the midst of what it is part of. So if you're not there in your Bibles now, turn to Genesis 16. We're going to read the whole chapter. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, or in Hebrew, El-Roi. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Okay, 
So let's just remember again here. We're, we're one chapter removed from God making a covenant with Abraham that he would make his offspring into a great nation. And, and to be clear, if you went back and read Genesis 15, this is not just kind of God speaking in Abram's head, promising him these things. It's a dramatic scene. The Lord comes down, animals are cut in half, and at the climax of it, Abram sees a smoking pot essentially float through these cut-up animals. God is being very dramatic in making the point that he is swearing something to Abram. But then his wife, Sarai, comes to him, and she says, because the Lord has prevented me from having children, which, again, the promise was just made, but it's there. We know that. This is a brand new covenant that the Lord has made with Abraham. She comes and she says, because the Lord has, behold, the Lord has prevented me from having children. And she's right, right? Like, let's keep that in mind. Life and death are in the hands of the Lord. It's not like the Lord makes this promise to them and is then some cosmic battle to ensure that Sarai has these kids. The Lord decides exactly when children come. And besides, Sarai is 76 years old at this point in the story. There's no kids unless the Lord does something. That's how human bodies work. So she comes, she says this, and I think we would hope for a, a response of faith, right? So she comes to Abram, she says, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from having children, so Abram, let's pray. Right? Let, let's petition the Lord that he would bring this about sooner. Or let, let's wait on the Lord. Let's trust in his timing. But rather than a response of faith, Sarai comes and is faithless. She says to Abram, let's do it our way. God's being too slow. The kids aren't here yet. So she proposes, take my female servant, presumably younger than her, to be another wife which culturally was normal. In the culture, they would understand this. The wife would give her servant to her husband, and any children that the servant would bear would be counted as the mistress's children. But just because it was culturally normal doesn't mean that it's not biblically abhorrent. Sarai is asking Abram to step outside of the one flesh union that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God's intention for marriage and procreation being between one man and one woman in covenant with one another. And I think what we see here, though this is not the main point of this message, is that it is always a bad idea to try to get to God's ends by our own means. Or, to say it another way, sinful means can never be justified by good ends. Because that's what Sarai is trying to do. She knows there's this promise. She wants to see the promise fulfilled, but she wants to do it her own way. And, you know, there's, there's something really cool. <laughs> the, the Bible was written by absolutely brilliant authors who were led by an absolutely infinite God. And so often we'll find in stories that there are connections being made allusions in the language to try to make us think of past stories, to help us know how to rightly think about what we are reading. So Moses, the author of the book of Genesis, I think he's trying to do something purposefully in how he's presenting this story. If we think back to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind into sin, we get this story where Eve, the wife of the covenant head, which if, if that phrase doesn't make sense to you, I'll explain it a little bit later. Eve, the wife of the covenant head, was enticed by Satan to disbelieve God's promises 
to try to get into a better position by her own means. She then enticed her husband, who should have been the spiritual leader he was created to be and call her to repentance, but rather he acted faithlessly as well. So that's Genesis 3, and then when we come to Genesis 16, we see Sarai, the wife of a covenant head, enticed by her own wisdom to disbelieve God's promises and to try to get into a better position by her own means. She then comes to her husband and entices him. He should have been the spiritual leader. He should have called her to repentance, but rather he acted faithlessly as well. There's also some direct language connections in these two stories. In, in 16.2, we see the phrase, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, Sarai. And in Genesis 3, when God comes to Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, curses the ground because of you. And in Genesis 16.3, we read, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the servant, or Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. That language, took, gave, and then the husband received. Same language as Genesis 3.6, Eve took the fruit and ate, but she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. I think the point that Moses is trying to make is that this is almost like another fall, another person who was in covenant relationship with God, acting faithlessly, choosing to live by sight rather than faith. I really do think it's a purposeful connection with the original fall of mankind. But there's one big difference between these two stories. In the fall, it's a story of two sinners. But here in Genesis 16, it's a story about three. And to make it very, very clear, what happened to Hagar was horrific. It was abusive. She was essentially turned into a sex slave. But she also sinned. And this might feel like piling on, but it will be very important for later. Because she looked on Sarai with contempt. That word can mean despised her. Or, or she made Sarai small in her eyes. She despised her mistress, which regardless of the circumstances was still sin. I think what we see so often is that the Bible is so uninterested in making human heroes for us. It goes out of its way to show how these great, quote-unquote, heroes of the faith failed. And I'm pretty convinced that that's because the Bible only ever wants us to see one hero, and that's Jesus. After these first events, the story really just devolves into a mess of sin. Sarai realizes that acting faithlessly has consequences. But rather than repenting, she goes and blames Abram even though it wasn't initially his idea. Abram completely abdicates his responsibility, tries to wash his hands and says, you know what, you do what you want, not my problem, you deal with it. Sarai abuses her servant further, and Hagar ultimately flees. And then we come to verse 7. Hagar, which we can see by talking about the well on the way to Shur, she's on her way back to Egypt. She's trying to go home. But then the angel of the Lord comes to her. The angel of the Lord, or, or maybe better, messenger, the word in Hebrew can mean angel or messenger. It's, it's just one of those words. This is the first time this character appears in all of Scripture. 
But if you read your Old Testament carefully, you'll see the appearances frequently. The angel of the Lord is not just any ordinary angel. There's something different about this character. And so so it's always the same language, the angel or messenger of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the messenger of Yahweh who comes to people. So there are kind of two views on who this character is. I, I don't have time to get into the arguments. The two views are essentially, maybe this is just a messenger who is so closely associated with God that characters sometimes directly refer to this messenger as Yahweh himself, or and this is the view that I'm drawn to, but admittedly, if you ask me next week, I might be leaning the other way again. This might be God himself coming down in a physical form to meet with his people in the Old Testament. Either way, this is not some ordinary angel. This is a special, special character who comes to Hagar. And you'll notice he comes without being called on. Hagar flees, and the immediate next sentence is, and the angel of the Lord came to her. There's no prayer. There's no crying out to the Lord. He graciously comes, without being called on, to come and care for her. A slave woman who, again, was, yes, a victim, but not just a victim. She was still a sinner, yet the Lord, without being asked, came to care for her. And then we see that care in in a lot of details. He calls her by name, Hagar, servant of Sarai. He asks where she's going, which of course he knew, but then he tells her to return. I wish that wasn't in here. I'll just be very honest. That is a hard thing to deal with. She's being told to return to this clearly abusive situation. So I don't have an explanation for you. I can't reason away why this would be happening. But what I can tell you is that I am convinced from the rest of Scripture, from the history of the church, and from my own life, that God is good. And so even though it's maybe not clear why she's being told to return, we can trust God's goodness in that command. And we can also be reminded that ultimately, God is not super interested in our worldly comfort. He's interested in our eternal comfort. Now, again, to be clear, I am not saying that it is always God's will for people to stay in abusive situations. That could be a whole sermon. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that God may call us to things that are painful and that fly against all of our intuitions. I mean, he's done it again and again. Christians have gone, have been killed, gone to the cross, gone to be burned for their faith. But with Hagar, the angel of the Lord in verse 10 says to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So if you went back and read Genesis 15 and Genesis 12, for that matter, you'd realize that the promise that God makes to Hagar here sounds very, very similar to what she promises Abraham. She's going to make, or God is going to make, her offspring into many people. But that promise was with Abraham and Sarai, not with Hagar. So God actually had no reason to make this promise to her. And and ultimately, I think in order to understand the weight not only of this promise that God makes, but also of this whole scene, in order to make sense of why she ultimately calls God a God of seeing, we need to understand 
the history of biblical covenants. So covenant is kind of a theme that underlies all of Scripture. The biblical covenants shape the whole story of redemption. They shape our stories. Covenant honestly may be the most important theme in the entire Bible. It's an absolutely massive topic. So, so what I'm going to go through here is an extremely, extremely brief overview, just enough so that we can actually understand what's happening here with Hagar, and just enough to understand the beauty of God's promises and love in this story. I do just need to note as I get into this, um, I am indebted to a book called Kingdom Through Covenant by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam for this whole overview. It's not my own work. I'm very grateful for scholars who know a lot more than I do. Anyways, covenant is not a word that we use a lot. It's not really common in North American culture. So I think the best way for us to think about it is a solemn oath. And in the context of the Bible, these are always made when God, infinite, eternal, massive, comes and swears to humanity to behave towards them in a certain way, to act out certain promises. And let's be clear, we have no right to ask for this, right? None of us can go to God, give him a piece of paper and say, hey, sign this covenant. You have to, you owe this to me. It is always a gracious act of God to step into history and to offer these covenants to humanity. And there are six major covenants that we see throughout scripture. So again, very brief overview of all six. The first one we see in Genesis chapters one through three. It's often called the covenant with creation. It's a covenant with creation and mankind, especially with Adam as the covenant head, coming back to that phrase. The, the person that God made the covenant with as a representative of a larger group of people. So I'll just acknowledge there's debate over whether this covenant actually exists or not. I don't want to take an hour to defend it. So I'll just say I'm convinced that there is a covenant made in Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to hear my reasoning for that, A, you're weirdly academic and I love it. Uh, you can come talk to me after and I'd love to talk through that. But essentially, this covenant is God's promise to mankind that they are made in his image and likeness, that they are given dominion over the earth, that they will care for it, that they will fill it with human beings. But to maintain this covenant, they must be obedient to God which is exhibited with Adam and Eve through not eating from the tree that they ultimately ate from, right? As we know, Adam breaks this covenant. The fruit is taken, covenant is broken, that relationship broken between God and man. From there, there's a few chapters, and then we come across in Genesis 6 through 9, God's covenant with Noah, or the Noahic covenant. This is actually very similar to the one made in Genesis 1 through 3, but now just in the context of a fallen world. Noah is treated just like Adam. He is one person who God makes the covenant with representing all of mankind. So, same deal. The image of God remains in place in human beings. We still have dominion over the earth to care for it, to fill it with people, um, and to make use of the resources in it in order to survive and build up. And specifically stipulated now, because it's in a fallen world, is the obligation to guard human life. Now, what's cool about this covenant, and praise God for it, is that there is no clear way for us to break it. 
It's a promise from God to not wipe out the whole world with a flood again. It's a promise from him that he will let mankind carry on even though we live in rebellion to him. And it's a covenant that's still in place today that we're reminded of, if you know the story, every time we see a rainbow up in the sky. Right? And that, that picture is just laden with imagery. In Hebrew, there's no difference between the word for rainbow and, like, weapon, a bow. And it's like God is saying to Noah, I'm putting my weapon away. I'm putting it in the sky. I'm not going to destroy mankind again. And we're reminded of that every time we see the rainbow. Another note, just because you're going to see this as a bit of a trend, the Bible goes out of its way immediately after this covenant is made to show Adam getting drunk, or not Adam, to show Noah getting drunk, acting shamefully, and failing to live up to his role as the head of this covenant. Then, as we talked about already, in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22, we see the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abraham, which, as I said, was a covenant that his offspring would become a great nation, that they would be given a great land, and that they would be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. In return, Abraham was to live by faith. But, again, as we've already seen in our story, he didn't. Three for three on these covenant heads, not doing a very good job of being faithful to God. But God still kept his side of the promise. And we see this because Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant. He came as a descendant of Abraham, and he offered infinite blessing to all peoples of the world. And Jesus inherited the whole world as king over it, the ultimate fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. Then, this is probably the one that you'd be the most familiar with, is the covenant with Israel at Sinai or the Mosaic Covenant. We see that in Exodus 19 through 24, right? This is where we get the Ten Commandments. This is the covenant that God made with the, the, the people of Israel, this specific geographical, genealogical people of Israel with Moses as the head of the covenant. God's side, he was going to give them the land of Israel, ultimately the land of Canaan at that time. But Israel's side was that they had to keep the whole of the Old Testament law, which was summarized in the Ten Commandments, which I'm sure many of you know very well. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that Israel was continually unfaithful to this covenant, but God continually called them back to himself. And four for four, Moses acted without faith and was ultimately not allowed to enter the land that God had promised to Israel. Jesus, throughout his life, perfectly kept this covenant, and at his death and resurrection, he abolished it. The book of Hebrews is clear that this Mosaic covenant was wiped out with the death and resurrection of Jesus. The fifth one, one of the more obscure ones maybe, the covenant that God made with David. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we see shades of it in Psalm 89. So it's made with David, King David of Israel, as the covenant head. And the promise was that someone from David's line would always reign as king. But bit of a trend here, they needed to remain faithful to Yahweh. Well, the story of David, he was not perfectly faithful, and his son Solomon was even worse, ended up worshiping gods from other nations by the end of his life, an absolute mess. But even though these kings were faithless, God remained faithful, 
and Jesus came from the biological line of David to reign as the king of the world forever. Sixth one, almost, I'm sure I've lost some of you. That's okay. It's just, it's helpful for those of you who are still tracking with me. And the new covenant, which again, this one you're probably familiar with because you've heard this phrase every month that we do, or every month at the end of the month when we do communion together. So we, we see kind of the stipulations, the promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 through 34, Ezekiel 33 through 39, and then ultimately Jesus announces it at the Last Supper, which is why we celebrate communion, and then he brings the new covenant into place with his death. So this covenant was made between God and Christians, the church, with Jesus as the covenant head the only one who can't fail, the only covenant head who can actually be faithful to what was being asked of him. And in the new covenant are massive, massive promises. It's a promise that God will remake our hearts so that we're able to obey him. It's a promise that he will forgive our sins. And it's a promise that he will let us as believers inherit the entire world with Jesus. Ultimately, The new covenant takes all the promises that God made in the Old Testament, it gives them to Jesus, and then Jesus gives them to us as Christians. And the only stipulation to enter into the new covenant is faith in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for our sins. Now, I I could go for the next six hours on the new covenant, so I'll stop there. That's worth an entire sermon series of its own. So we'll jump back into the story with a little bit of that background of the covenants So for those of you who checked out, come back. We're we're going back in now. Why does this matter? Why, Why did I essentially just teach a really condensed theology class? It's because we have to realize that Hagar was not included in any of the covenants that God made with specific people, right? The covenant with Noah is broad. It's essentially just a promise that he isn't going to wipe us out again. So that one's not specific. But she wasn't covered by the Abrahamic covenant. She wasn't covered with the covenant at Sinai. She wasn't covered under the Davidic, and the new covenant didn't, well, most of these covenants didn't exist at that point, but she she had none of them. She had no specific promises of God that she could call him to account for. She was a fleeing slave. She was going to die in the desert on her way back to Egypt. That's what was coming. She had no covenant to point to God and say, hey, you promised you would do this. Nothing. He had made no commitment to care for her in a special way, and he wasn't just coming to care for an innocent victim. She was a sinner. And yet, without her calling on him, without her having anything to offer him in return, he comes and he makes her a very similar promise to the one that he made to Abraham. He promises to make her child into a great nation. I mean, more than that, he tells her what her son is going to be like. She tells her what his descendants will be like. And ultimately, biblical history shows that all of this comes true. What did she have to offer? She had no reason that God should come and care for her, but he did. What an incredible blessing, that that is the heart of our God, that he finds people with nothing, 
and he makes promises that he doesn't owe us. He makes promises where we can't actually offer him anything in return, but he makes them. He commits himself to broken, sinful people. Finally then, in verses 13 and 14, we come to the name that this sermon's supposed to be, out, be about. In verses 13 and 14, Hagar says, or the, the text says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bier Lahai Royi. So El Roi, compound Hebrew word of El, kind of a shorthand for, for God, and Roi, of seeing. God of seeing, the God who sees me. And she just drives it home because she throws out this name and then she essentially says, well, I'm, I'm calling him this because I have seen the God who cares for me. And then your translations might actually translate the Hebrew here, mine doesn't, but she calls the well, Bier Lahai Royi, or the well of the living one who sees me. So now we come back to what I said in the introduction. What does this actually mean? What does Hagar mean when she calls God a God of seeing? And so now, informed by all the background work we've done, I want to offer three things that I think that she is tying up in one name that she gives to Yahweh. So the first of these, and I think this is the most obvious, probably the one that we would immediately think of when we hear God of seeing, God is omniscient. He knows everything, past, present, and future. His knowledge is complete. It is perfect. There is no gap. There is no fault. He has all knowledge, which immediately sounds kind of just like a, a lofty idea, but the reason that I said we had to look at it in the story is because she's not thinking about this in a lofty way. She's thinking about this in a very, very personal way. What she's saying is that, yes, God is all-knowing, and that means that he knows your struggles. He knows your pain. He knows the temptations that you're going through. He knows your heartbreaks. He knows your sufferings. Those things that you've shared with no other human being because you either just don't have the words or you fear rejection or you fear retribution, God knows. He knows very personally, each one of you. It's not just broad and vague. He knows each one of us deeply, in depth, everything. But more than that, and I think this is the second thing that she communicates with this name, is that God is caring and he is loving. And again, in her context, there's no covenantal commitment from him to be that way. He has not promised to care or love for her in any way, but he does. And I think the reason this is necessary is because if God knew but didn't care, this whole scene would never play out. He'd be aware, and, and then she would just die in the wilderness, and he'd be aware of that too. But he came. And, and, you know, I think of the story of Jesus with Lazarus. Lazarus is dying in the book of John. And his sisters send to Jesus, and they say, hey, our brother is dying. We know that you can heal him. Can you come and do that? And Jesus, kind of shockingly, waits. He waits three days. Lazarus dies. And then Jesus goes. And if you know the end of the story, 
Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And he goes fully aware of what he is about to do. And yet, he comes, he sees the mourning of the sisters of Lazarus, and Jesus weeps with them. That's the heart of our God for us. He knows the depth of our struggle. He knows the outcome. Yet in the moment, even though he knows it all, he feels the pain of his children, and he cares for them in that moment. None of us would be capable of something like that. That is an incredible level of care. That's a greater care than, you know, a friend who can just sit and listen but can't really do anything, right? He is aware, and he feels it, like Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. And finally, the third thing that I think Hagar communicates here, that God knows everything, he cares about all those details, and finally, he can actually do something about it, right? Because if God knew and God cared, but God was unable to actually do anything, well, he's no more useful than any of our human friends. He could sit and listen, but okay, good, I'm still dying, right? The, the cancer is still taking over. My child is still wayward. The difference between God and our friends is that not only does he know and care, but he can actually do something about it. Right? Our hurts, our trials, are not beyond the strength of our God to mend. That's his power. And again, we, we've seen the rest. He, he cares enough to do it. That's why we go to him in prayer. But more than that, because of his great love for us, he also knows when to let it continue. He knows what is good for us. Right? I mean, isn't that the definition of God's love, that he gives us what we need and not what we want? Because if he always gave us what we wanted, we would probably all be complete messes. But instead, these trials come. And he doesn't take them away immediately. He does what he intends through them, and he gives us the strength to carry through. Now, I, I think if you tie all three of these ideas together, you can sum up what Hagar means by calling him of God of seeing with one word, or maybe two words. It's that she is affirming God's loving providence for people. Everything comes from him, ultimately whether by decree or by permission. And everything that he sends to his children is designed to bring them closer to him. He knows best. He loves us deeply enough, like I said, to not give us what we want, but to give us what we need. And church, this is true not just vaguely. There are some of you. There is disease. There's cancer. There are wayward children. There may be relationships with kids in your home that are afraid that you don't know what to do. Relationships within the church that feel broken, like they can't be fixed. God knows. God cares. And quite frankly, God is the only one who can actually do something about it. That is the heart of our God for us. It is one of infinite love of infinite care, 
and of infant knowledge, and when you tie those all together, it shows us that our God's loving providence is our only anchor in life. It's all we've got, because nothing else is really that reliable. But our God is good. But as we close, I want to show you something bigger. I want to show you that each one of us is actually more like Hagar than we probably realize right off the bat. Like I said, Hagar had no covenant to point God towards as to why he should be faithful to her. Nothing. We, each one of us, we were born outside of all the covenants of God. He owed each one of us absolutely nothing. Hagar, wandering through the desert, going to die. All of us, wandering through the desert of a fallen world, headed to the only place where we can go apart from him, to death and to hell, eternal separation from God, enslaved to sin, hopeless. Hagar didn't call out. I don't even know if she knew that she could. Didn't call out to God. Just like we have no strength, no desire, apart from what he puts in us, to call out to him. And yet, if you are a Christian in this room today, and, you know, let me go the other way. If you aren't, you need to listen to this. Like I said, this is the only message with any hope. This is it. This is all you've got. If you are a Christian in this room today, despite having no covenant to hold God to, despite having no desire to follow him, despite having nothing to offer and being a slave of sin, God came to you and he pointed you to wonderful promises that you could never dream of asking him for. He came to you and he said, look, my son has died in your place. The cost of your sin has been paid. Come to me. Come to me for rest. Come to me for life. He offered us a covenant that every time we take communion, we celebrate. We had nothing to hold him to, and yet he came to us, and he made the offer. Put your faith in my son, and I will swear myself to you. I will behave exactly, I will love you. I will keep you to the end. I will give you the entire world along with my son. I will forgive your sins. I will enable you for ministry. He offered that covenant that we don't deserve that we can't afford, that we can't hold him to, apart from the fact that he is faithful to keep it. We are just like Hagar. And God showed us, I believe, an even greater love than he showed to her. His promise was that her kids would be a great nation. Awesome. His promises to us are that we will inherit the world with his son. In fact, if we see in the book of Romans, his promise ultimately was that he would give himself to us. He would fill us with his spirit, that he would make us able to do the things that we are not able to do, to obey his commands. He enables it all in us. So church, God sees you. God knows you. And God loves you. He sees all of your trials, all of your hurts, all of your sufferings, 
and he's ultimately using them to draw you closer to him. But even greater than that, even more than that, he has offered you the greatest blessing he possibly could in suffering, and that is the blessing of Jesus Christ himself. Let us rest in the wonderful grace of Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God, the God who sees. Let's pray. Father, we had no hope that you would take us, no hope that you would call us, no hope (laughs) to be anything more than people destined to an eternity separated from you in hell. Yet you reached out and you sent your son to take the form of a man, to live a human life, to be perfectly obedient, and ultimately to pay the cost of our failures on the cross. He suffered in our place. He bore your wrath that we should have absorbed. Father, we are so grateful that you know us. Help us to live each day in light of the fact that we are fully seen, fully known, and that if we are your children, we are fully loved by you, and that you have sworn yourself to us because of the work of Christ. Father, we don't deserve what you have done, but we are so, so grateful. Help us to live as if that is true. Amen.